1: And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection.
2: The only way is through. A new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. The
3: reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just
0: perform.
2: Listen to The Only Way is Through. Available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You. From HouseStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen.
2: And I'm Caroline.
3: And on Stuff Mom Never Told You, we have touched on a number of aspects of parenting and family life and sibling dynamics. Uh, but a listener wrote in with a really great suggestion that we had not touched on at all, which is uh, foster care. Totally different kind of sort of emergency family that a lot of kids in the United States and abroad end up being placed in. Um, foster care is not meant to be a long-term situation for most kids. The goal is to, um, get them into a safe place and then, um, have them end up in a, in some kind of stable home environment, preferably reunited with their birth parents. But the reality of the foster system in the United
2: States is not quite so optimistic. Right. Um, As of September 30th, 2009, there were an estimated 423,773 children in foster care. That's according to the Child Welfare Information Gateway from the Department of Health and Human Services. And just under half, 49% of those children, had a case goal of reunification with their families. And, unfortunately, not all children are reunited with their birth families. Some are adopted into their foster care families, or some find permanent homes. But, uh, unfortunately, a lot of children in the system age out, which means that they never found a permanent home. Um, and so they are—they uh, don't receive that, that feeling of security and permanence that is ideal. Right. They turn
3: 18, and even though they have been uh, essentially wards of the state up until then, They, at that point, become legal adults, and they have really no support system whatsoever. Um, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later, but, uh, just to clarify things. According to the U.S. government's definition of foster care, we're talking about a 24-hour substitute care for children outside of their own homes, which would include non-relative foster family homes, relative foster family homes, which would be living with an aunt or an uncle, for instance, group homes, emergency shelters, residential facilities, and pre-adoptive homes.
2: Yes, and as far as the number of kids entering and exiting every year, um again in fiscal year 2009 uh 255,000 give or take uh children entered and 276,000 exited foster care and 51% of the children who left the system ended up being re- reunited with their parents or primary caretakers 20% were adopted and 11% were emancipated from their primary caregivers
3: and just for a couple more stats to give you an idea of the foster population it's typically slightly more boys than girls are in the foster system in the u.s uh as of 2009 those are the most recent stats we've got uh it's 53 percent male versus 47 percent female and the median age of kids entering foster care is 9.7 years and the average child in a foster situation will move through three placements And 7% of those kids in foster care will stay in the system for five and a half years. Whereas at the other end of the spectrum, 13% will stay in less than one month. So there's such a wide range of situations. But sadly, with a lot of the outcomes that we found, there's, there, there aren't a lot of bright spots.
2: (laughs) No. And I want to talk about a little bit about where, um, most of these foster care uh, most of the foster children live. I didn't realize that it's so concentrated. Um, but according to childrensrights.org, more than half of the children in foster care live only in nine states, which are California, Florida, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Texas.
3: Yeah, I didn't realize that either. Um And compensation for foster parenting is done on a state-by-state basis, and uh, I found it interesting that California is one of those highly concentrated states because they have one of the biggest state-level problems with not fairly compensating uh, these foster caregivers. For instance, um this was a study conducted by Children's Rights along with the National Foster Parent Association and the University of Maryland School of Social Work in 2007. And for a two-year-old, In the foster system, the foster parents would be reimbursed $425 per month. When they went in and actually calculated the cost of living for or caregiving for that two-year-old, Uh, the study found that they should be paying, the state should be paying them 61% more. Hmm. 61% more at a rate of $685. And that will go up, and that's just for a two-year-old. If you take it in a 16-year-old, the cost of living goes up even higher. And probably for that reason, in 2009, the California Court of Appeals ruled that the state's money uh, compensating Foster parents is so low that it violated federal child welfare law.
2: Yeah, it was illegal and insufficient. Mm-hmm. And according to the L.A. Times writing about this, um, the number of children placed with families had plummeted as costs rose and fewer families were willing to take in children. So not compensating families enough for the foster care they provide is directly affecting how many families take in children.
3: Right. And we should say uh, uh, that this podcast is going to focus more on the situation for the kids rather than how the, any kind of training or process that parents go into to uh, to take kids into their homes. Um, and I guess before we go further, maybe we should talk a little bit about how the foster care system in the United States came about.
2: Indeed. References to it go all the way back to the Old Testament and the Talmud, where caring for dependent children was established as a duty under the law. So it wasn't something that people never thought about. Mm-hmm. Taking in children was was part of, as, as was taking care of uh, widows. Um, the English Poor Law in the 16th century led to more stringent regulation. And in 1562, those laws allowed placement of poor children into indentured service until they came of age, which doesn't sound like it's a precursor to the foster care system, but but it is. Um, the practice actually followed Europeans to America and was the beginning of placing children in homes. And
3: then for a little historical fact, in 1636, Benjamin Eaton became the first foster child on... U.S. soil, although I guess it was not technically U.S. soil, obviously, back then. But the first person, you know, first kid,
2: geographically. In the the region that was to be known as the United States of America.
3: But it wasn't really until Charles Loring Brace in the 1830s that the foster movement in the United States really took off. He was the founder of the Children's Aid Society. And he came up with this idea of taking... Um, I guess indigent children from the streets of New York to move them to the Midwest and the West because of the new train lines. And he was like, we could take these kids from the city streets, get them out to what were called free foster homes in the the Midwest. And they could they could farm. They could be out on the land and be in a much healthier environment.
2: Right. He um, he definitely thought that raising a child took more than just, you know, paying for them to eat. They needed gainful work. Um, they needed a supportive, wholesome family environment. And so, yeah, he advertised in the South and West for families willing to take in children. And this was really the beginning of um, institutional care. Um, he He didn't want children to be stunted, but he also thought that there was a bit of a, uh, a poor immigrant problem in New York, as he saw it, and definitely wanted to be part of not only supporting these children to have better lives, but sort of cleaning up the streets of New York. Um, yeah, between 1853 and 1929, more than 150,000 abandoned, abused, and orphaned children were taken by train from New York City and shipped to families on farms across the country, both to, to be farmhands, to get out in nature, get off the streets, and... Although these trains were referred to as orphan trains, many weren't actually orphans, but were actually surrendered by their families.
0: Okay, so a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great
1: about their hair. I can definitely relate to the confidence part because if my hair is doing something... And Sundays on NBC, watch
0: it live. There's sure to be big twists and huge surprises.
1: So you'll want to enjoy your Good Girls experience in a spoiler-free zone. The all-new, all-hilarious season
0: of Good Girls, Sundays on NBC and stream anytime. And
3: while transporting these these kids across the country might seem uh, pretty controversial by today's standards, this really was a revolutionary option to orphan asylums and almshouses, which were where those kids might end up otherwise, and they wouldn't be able to learn any kind of trade and typically would not be treated very well. Um, and one side note to the Children's Aid Society and the work that Charles Loring Brace did, um, one of their projects, was starting up mothers' meetings for poor women in New York City. Um, and it was the forerunner to PTA, because these teachers would teach mothers basically how to be better mothers. And this was taking place, I think they first started in 1863. So not only was, uh, was Brace trying to get kids off the street, but also rehabilitate entire families, which is a theme that, is still, um, you know, idealized in the foster care system that we have in place today, but um, it's a, it's a hard, um, and challenging goal to meet in reality.
2: Right. And you could say that it's a challenge because um, out-of-home placement is associated with disruptions in attachment, and this is according to a University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics uh, analysis from 2000. They found that losses and lack of permanence undermine a child's attempt to form a secure attachment with a primary caregiver. So children who are, you know, shuttled around from foster care home to foster home, or even if they're simply taken, moved one time mm-hmm. from their biological family to a foster family, that upsets a child's stability. And even visits with parents can be upsetting to young children and disruptive to development if they are trying to um, get used to their foster family. And the longer that
3: a child stays in foster care, the lesser the chance they have of reuniting with birth parents. And along with that, uh, you'll see often an increase in behavioral problems. Now, the behavioral problems for kids in foster care obviously are are largely predicted by behavioral problems and abuse that they might have suffered going into the foster system. But that in issue of stability
2: is is such a big determinant of outcomes for kids in the system. In a 2007 MIT study, these abused children who were placed in foster care were found to be far more likely than other children to commit crimes, drop out of school, join welfare, experience substance abuse problems, or enter the homeless population. And another study found that um, among the youth formerly in foster care, the 12-month rate of panic disorder was three times that of the general population. And along with that, they had a seven times higher rate of drug dependence,
3: seven times higher rate of bulimia, and twice the rate of alcohol dependence. So you have all of these negative behaviors going on, and... Um, There was one study that was cited in a presentation from Dee Wilson, who's executive director of the Northwest Institute for Children and Families. And uh, she references this study comparing maltreated kids moved from their homes into some kind of foster situation to maltreated kids who remain in their home in a possibly still abusive home environment but they're but they're there they obviously have caseworkers that are coming in and trying to to manage the in-home environment and the kids who were moved out of their homes actually failed worse behaviorally which underscores to these researchers just how important that home relationship and the parental relationship really is. So, understanding how to service those children and getting them out of abusive or neglectful environments while not robbing them of what it, the obviously crucial role of a stable home environment is still a giant puzzle for researchers.
2: Yeah, and uh, the recommendation out of part of a KC National alumni study, and they refer to youth formerly in foster care as alumni, one of the recommendations is to increase access to mental health screening and treatment for youth in foster care and those who have um, been adopted out or aged out, um, because they just tend to have more of these problems that we've talked about. Mm -hmm. A lot of it comes from that disruption in the family life and the connections to their family. Well, and according to the
3: National Survey of Child and Adolescent Well-Being, it seems that infants and toddlers actually fare worse on developmental measures after 18 months in care, and that might be because the younger the population, the foster population, the more vulnerable that they've been to um, caregiver mistreatment before they are taken out of the home.
2: Right. There was one um instance uh, where what study was it that we read where a guy was talking about how he had gone through the system but he it took him years before he realized that his his last family, his permanent family, they were not going to hurt him or abuse mm-hmm. him. But he had been exposed to so many different homes where he had experienced abuse that he was just he was used to it. Right. And he expected to be treated poorly by families who took him in.
3: Um, and there's also some scholarship indicating that kinship care, as in moving, um, children out of maybe a home with their parents to a relative, is more stable than foster care. And again, there, it seems to be that, that connection to the family. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm sure it is a huge problem for these caseworkers who obviously they want to ensure the best treatment for the children. Um, but once you break those ties, you know what do you what do you do i'm sure it's 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 difficult all around
2: yeah and there's definitely an effort to to maintain the family ties it's it's not a quick simple process to put a child in the foster care system according to the child welfare information gateway before a decision is made to remove a child child welfare staff must make reasonable efforts to safely Maintain children with their family. And that could include providing support, services, having court intervention. And that court intervention depends on the risk to the child, whether it's low to moderate or no risk or or moderate to high. And like I said, it's not a quick process. Claims of abuse or neglect have to be investigated. And if the child is at low to moderate risk, referrals may be made to community-based or volunteer in-home child welfare services. So definitely maintaining... Um, the the family and then for moderate to high-risk children family may be offered in-home services or may seek court intervention and the court may eventually order removal Uh, and once children
3: are placed uh, we should mention that adoption does happen Um, foster parents do have the ability to adopt foster kids it used to be before the nineteen seventies it was discouraged for fear of losing good foster families and this idea that older kids are unadoptable, which all of this reminds me that we do have yet to do a podcast on adoption, which we promise we'll get around to. Um But since then, uh, the uh, the pathway for foster care adoption has been opened up a lot more. And in 2002, for example, uh, 27,000 or 53% of the 53,000 children who were adopted directly from
0: foster care that year were adopted by their foster parents. Okay, so a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair.
2: There are uh, quite a lot of uh, benefits to having a foster family adopt their foster child if it comes to that. Um, foster parents have a greater knowledge of the child's experiences. Uh, it provides more consistency for the child. Uh, the parents know what to expect. You know, if the child has any, it has, you know, previous issues, maybe coming from an abusive family or having um, drug or alcohol dependence. And they're familiar with the birth family. So if if the child, you know, if there are ties there, if the child is trying to maintain ties or the family wants to maintain ties, they're they're familiar with the family as well. And this would be a a good
3: time, too, to mention biological children of foster parents, because that was one question that I had was, um, how the foster system affects, you know, kids who are, are born and raised in those foster homes. And there actually has not been that much research done on it. And there was, uh, there was one outcome study that we did run across that was, it was a pretty small sample of interviews with kids who had, you know, the biological children who had grown up, um, with foster parents and, not surprisingly there are some pretty unique challenges that go along with that. Um for instance, they found that uh, some biological children resented the foster children for having talking about their own family. Mm-hmm. Um some foster children resisted the emotional adoption into the foster family which could cause tension with the biological kids and some biological children noted strong feelings of being less important to their parents because their needs were perceived to be Less great, and and they uh, they even included this this diagram of sort of a hierarchy that can sometimes just naturally evolve within foster families between the needs of biological children versus the foster children, and how parents can um, you know service all of those things while. Maintaining healthy relations between all of the kids,
2: right? And it depends on how long the foster child is with the family, um, as far as how close they get with all the members of the family. And some children reported in this uh, study—they interviewed, they talked to four adults and five children—like still. Children, biological children. Um, and some reported that while the foster child was taken in, he or she did not become part of the nucleus of the family. And there were several reasons given, some of those being maybe the family is burned out, the kids are feeling burned out from, from caring, taking in someone and caring for them. And some parents operate this way to protect the biological children and to compensate for all the time and focus on the foster children. So some families might just be trying so hard to balance. You know, here are our biological children, but we've also promised to take care of this other child. But it seems
3: like for, for foster kids in particular, the biggest risk factor is that issue of aging out mm-hmm. of the system. This is happening to roughly 22,000 kids every year who are in the U.S. who are turning 18, and uh, th- they don't really have anywhere to turn. A lot of them might end up in a homeless shelter on their 18th birthday because of that.
2: Yeah, um, going back to uh, childrensrights.org, they talked about um, children aging out of the system without a permanent family, and cr- like Kristen just said, uh, 12 to 30 percent struggled with homelessness after they aged out, and this is looking at several different studies, which is why the the range of percentages is there. Um, 40 to 63 percent did not complete high school, and 25 to 55 percent were found to be unemployed. And one thing that I found, um, interesting is the high rate of young women who ended up pregnant within 12 to 18 months of leaving foster care, mm-hmm. which is such a short, a short time. And
3: also, uh, not surprisingly, 50% experience extreme
2: financial hardship. Yeah. If you don't have anyone supporting you, I mean, it would be hard to get through college and then finding a job afterward. So we have
3: painted a pretty dire picture of foster care in the U.S., um, on a more positive note to, to end things, maybe on an upswing, uh, the, the government has tried to address some of these problems, um, in recent years. The Pew Commission on Children in Foster Care, sponsored by the Pew Charitable Trust, ha- underwent a 2004 year-long intensive study of the foster care system in the US and as a result of the recommendations that they made um, from that research in October 2008 Fostering Connections to Success and an Increasing Adoptions Act was passed unanimously by Congress and signed into law by President Bush and um, that piece of legislation was the most comprehensive foster care revision that the the Congress had made in decades, um, and it authorized federal resources to allow more children to leave foster care for safe, permanent homes with family members. And it also allowed for provisions to support the adoption of children from foster care, especially older youth and those with special needs. And then finally, it paved the way for tribal governments to be able to receive foster care funds directly from the federal government, thus ensuring that more American Indian and Alaskan Native children can remain with their own communities, because that has been a huge problem of Native American children being plucked from their tribal communities and sent away to private group homes.
2: Right. So I want to hear from our listeners who've been involved in the system. Do we have any social workers out there who can comment on some of these statistics? Do we have people who've been through the system themselves? Mm -hmm. Or how about foster families out there? Right. Because, uh, like we said,
3: we're really talking about and focusing on the situation for the kids. Um, So... Foster parents out there, I mean, I, I can't imagine that it, it is an easy job and it certainly does not come with, um, huge financial reward. Um, so, so please, anyone involved who can give us some insight, because we've been going through a lot of statistics and a lot of studies, a lot of which are pretty distressing. Yeah, it's
2: pretty grim. I've gotta say.
3: But let us know your thoughts as always. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send your thoughts, or you can always head over to Facebook and leave us a comment up there, or you can tweet us if you are very succinct at MomStuffPodcast.
2: We got a couple letters right now to read. Okay, this is from Christy. The subject line is Why I Exercise. And no, I, I still really want to know why people exercise because I need some sort of motivation. Anyway, she says, just finished your episode about exercise. I have two reasons why I get up at 3.30 a.m. to juice and then go run in Uptown. My three-and-a-half-year-old daughter and my 10-month-old son. Not only does it give me the energy to make it through the day, including bath and bedtime, but I'm setting a good example for them both, particularly my daughter. It paid off a couple of weeks ago when we ordered some new shoes for Lily. When they arrived and she put them on, she ran around exclaiming, I have mommy running shoes! When... I am still so amazed by the fact that she wakes up at three thirty in the morning. That's the middle of the night. If I roll over at three thirty in the morning and I look at the clock, I'm like, oh, thank God. And, <laughs> it's so much time to sleep. And she's a mother. Yeah, good for her. Gosh, she's, she's right super though. Superwoman. Exercising does give you more energy to make it through the day, but I need the energy to exercise first.
3: Right. Exactly. Yeah. The morning morning exercise is, is a big hurdle for me. Well, I've got one here from Justine about our episode on Martha Stewart, and she says, I just had to write in about Martha Stewart to say, heck yes, Uh she is an excellent role model. She is just as much of a feminist as Hillary Clinton. The same right to equal opportunity that allows a woman to be a world political leader or a marine says she can also choose to pour her heart into cooking, cleaning, crafting, and entertaining, or anything else she likes. The freedom is in the choosing. Does Martha sometimes go a bit crazy? Yes. Her legions of adoring fans will tell you that that's what lifts her from entertaining to sublime. She certainly doesn't do this work to please a man or fit a mold, and it seems to me that she does it for the sake of making a wonderful life for herself and those she loves. And what is more admirable than that? Indeed, Justine. <laughs> so, again, if you've got anything to send our way, you can email us, momstuff@discovery.com. You can find us on Facebook, and you can follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. Of course, you can check out the blog during the week. It's Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.
0: The House HowStuffWorks
1: iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? So here's something that some of you might find shocking.